Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, now completing week 9 of my flu and bronchitis. On this edition, Ellen Jorgensen talks about gen space, bright sparks identify rhinoceros horns and detect mitochondrial diseases. But first up, here's the news. <laughs> Carnivorous plants glow blue. Researchers at the Jawaharlal Nehru Tropical Botanic Garden and Research Institute in Kerala, India, have discovered that three different kinds of carnivorous plants fluoresce blue when ultraviolet light is shone onto them, as happens in daylight. The extra colour attracts more insects for the plants to eat. The team examined 14 types of tropical hanging pitcher plants, five types of American trumpet pitcher plants, five types of sundews, two butterworts, the Venus flytrap, and one type of bladderwort. They photographed the plants while shining ultraviolet light on them with a wavelength of 366 nanometers. They looked for a fluorescent glow caused by the ultraviolet light. Fluorescence happens when a substance absorbs a high frequency of light, like ultraviolet light, and then re-emits a lower frequency, like visible light. Many flowers fluoresce blue to signal they have sweet nectar. They found a blue fluorescent glow on the lips of the traps of the tropical pitcher plants, the American trumpet pitchers, and the inner sides of the traps of the Venus flytraps. Some of the tropical pitcher plants glowed in two different colours of blue. The sundews, butterworts and the bladderwort only glowed red in the ultraviolet, as all leaves with chlorophyll will do. Tropical pitcher plants are a climbing vine that has pitfall traps filled with a digestive liquid. The jug or pitcher-shaped traps are bordered by a lip coated in nectar that attracts the insects, close to a slippery region that means the feeding insects fall into the plant and are dissolved by the liquid. To test if the fluorescent colour was helping the plants catch prey, the researchers masked the brightest part of the trap of one of the tropical pitcher plants with an extract from a slippery part of the trap. The slippery parts don't glow in ultraviolet. When compared with the control traps that were glowing normally, after 10 days, the masked traps caught significantly fewer insects. This suggests that the blue glow really helps the plants attract insects. Insects have evolved to recognise flowers with the most nectar. Most flowers tend to have fluorescent colours under ultraviolet light that humans could see under artificially bright ultraviolet light when all the other light is very low. Some flowers also reflect colour in the ultraviolet spectrum that insects can see and which humans would never see without special cameras. To human eyes, the blue glow on the traps of these predatory plants is too faint to see in daylight, but to an insect crawling near the traps, it's probably very bright and very attractive. The paper was titled Fluorescent Prey Traps in Carnivorous Plants and was published in the journal Plant Biology 
I've got to get myself a bright UV torch and go check out the glow from my carnivorous plant collection. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Sarah Brooker from Science in Public created fresh science to encourage early career scientists to find the story in their science and get it out to the public. The Bright Spark Challenge is for these scientists to explain their research in the time it takes a sparkler to burn down which is about 45 seconds of sparkles. The talks were held on the upstairs stage of the noisy pub, The Three Wise Monkeys, in Sydney. Carl Hewitt from the University of Sydney and the Australian Museum. Come to the stage, please, Kyle. All right, so my invention was I designed a quick, cheap, rapid way of identifying rhinoceros horn. So over a thousand rhinos approached a year, and one of the main problems with the rhino poaching is that there's not many convictions. So we want to increase the capacity of wildlife forensics so that convictions can be laid down so that there's deterrence of the trade. So I made a cheap test which would usually take weeks in Vietnam and about a week in Australia, and now it can be done in probably under three hours, definitely less than 24 hours. And then went over to Vietnam, implemented this test, trained the Vietnamese scientists. So now hopefully they can increase the convictions. And then the more convictions there are, the more deterrence there is, and people will be willing, uh, less willing to enter the trade, because rhino horn's worth more than gold. Okay, so people use it as a cure for cancer, uh, similar status, but it's made out of the same stuff as your fingernails. that it's uh, more expensive than gold and yep. today you've even proven that it's more expensive than cocaine. Yeah, depending on uh, what country you're in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you So what does it sell for? I mean, uh, what, what are the purchase getting uh, for it? Again, it does depend on what country you're in. It can be up to 100 grand a kilo. It's usually around 70 grand a kilo. So it's, it's worth a lot. And like I said, it is made out of Fingernails, but um, they know it doesn't. Uh, they, they think it cures cancer, and um, it's equivalent to fingernails. Having a, as it's a cancer, so. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty ridiculous. Right. So, is this the first time someone's tried this for rhinoceros? I mean, DNA testing and DNA fingerprinting sort of been around for ages. I mean, we've watched CSI on television. Aren't you a bit late on the boat here? Well, yeah, they do have ways they can identify rhinoceros. But they, in Australia, it would take about a week because you have to sequence a bit of DNA. In Vietnam, it can take weeks because they have the infrastructure. And they, it's vital for especially countries like Vietnam where most of the horns are going. They only have a small window where they can gather this intelligence. Otherwise, the conviction can't be laid down. So they need a rapid test so they can initiate the conviction. Um, so they just weren't able to, they just weren't able to put anyone in jail because they weren't like, getting this intelligence in time, so now they hopefully can. Terrific, we have a question down here. So what's the test? So what's the test? Um, 
It's a DNA-based test. So every Rhinish species has its own genetic signature. And there's, there's a lot of uh, fake horns in the traits, a lot of water buffalo sort of horns. So it's a species ID test based on these DNA differences. And we just run the extracted DNA, our drill into the horn, extracted DNA, run it on a, do a PCR, photocopy a bit of the DNA, run it on a drill, and it's all species. Question in the middle. Thank you, Robert. So where is this test likely to be used? Is it something that gets used out in the field or in courtrooms or what's the situation? It's going to be, it's still going to be used in labs because it's in forensic conditions and, uh, and that's only, you can't find them in labs. And um, so we've implemented it in Vietnam, but another aspect of the test, I was in South Africa a few weeks ago and this test is probably going to be the international standard for species ID. So we're trying to now internationalize a test, which uh, need to do a little bit more validation, but hopefully in a couple of months' time it can be the gold standard for species ID. Yes, over here. How long before your method, instead of being used to start a train, it's been used by the people in the train to differentiate their horns from buffalo horns and different race Oh, how long before well, the baddies use it? These, I mean, there's one, Lab in Vietnam can do this, so they're not these parties don't think they have access to these DNA facilities to be able to do this. And the people that are selling the water buffalo probably know it's water buffalo. The people that are buying it, I don't. They're buying it because they have they, they think it has medicinal properties. So they don't. I don't think they really care what it is. They just want it to cure their cancer happen. So I don't think that's a big problem anytime soon. Thank you. We'll take one question at the back. Why are you focusing on rhinos? Is it applicable for other animals as well? Um, Why rhinos? What about other animals? There are a lot of animals in the trade. Rhinos are particularly bad feckers. You probably all know that the poaching numbers have increased dramatically since about 2008. Last year there was over 1,200 poached, just like three a day. But there are other animals affecting the trade. I'm doing a PhD now in the cockatoo trade, so I'm working on developing similar techniques to stop Australian cockatoos being illegally caught here in our bush and sold to Southeast Asia. And there's a lot of people doing ivory work, so on elephants, pangolins, lizards, um, but rhinos, one of the main animals in the trade at the moment, it's a big problem. And our last question over here, thanks Robert. So, just in like a couple of sentences, what actually is the new science that made this possible? What's new? What's the new science? I, that's a, a tough thing. <laughs> well, the, te the test is new, and it involved getting a certain uh, chemistry and using the DNA and the right chemistry to give you an answer very quick. So I guess the, the chemistry behind the test is like, you know, there's a lot of optimization, a lot of validation going into it. Um, and I guess, yeah, that the type of test I'm using is new to the field of wildlife forensics, but it's not necessarily a new type of test, but, yeah. I think that sounds like a new TV show. That's, that's where you should be looked to, wildlife inside, yeah. Thank you very much, Carl, thank you.
That was Carl Hewitt from the University of Sydney and the Australian Museum presenting his work on rapid and robust species identification of rhinoceros horn. So Manal Menez is from the Children's Research Institute and the University of Sydney. Picture this, Luca, 17 months of age, has a rare disease, in and out of hospital for 10 months, and then a lot of invasive tests, finally diagnosed with a rare disease called mitochondrial disorder, which robs his body of energy. So 1.2 million Australians have a rare disease, out of which 400,000 are children. So my research is all about taking one simple blood test from Luca, screening his entire genome, finding the culprit gene and linking it to the disorder, and opening broad uh, treatment, which is much more targeted and peace of mind to his family. So what sort of um, genetic disorders have you picked up then? Uh, we've worked on disorders, uh, mitochondrial is one of them. So it is very difficult to diagnose because it can come across as a cardiac symptom or an eye disorder, even diabetes or skin. So it just masquerades itself in different ways. So this is very specific instant. And it could be diagnosed only taking muscle or liver biopsies which in a child who's already sick can be quite fatal, giving them an anesthetic and things like that. So what is your test? Is it a genetic test? Are you taking a blood sample and running the DNA? Or? Yeah, so it is a genetic test. So all we need is a blood sample. So it's just how the genetic testing is improvised. You can screen all the genes. So sometimes it gives answers which they don't even expect, something that the child is probably susceptible 10 years later to. Yes. So, who are you thinking this test would be used for? Because obviously you're not going to screen everyone who comes down with a slight sniffle, for example. Yeah, so as I said, it's more applicable to rare diseases where very less is known and they can't diagnose. I'm assuming that you don't know the person's got the rare disease yet, though, when you're thinking about doing a screening test. Yes, because you were saying the sort of symptoms can appear as just a... Kind of, it could be anything. So at what point does the GP make that decision? I guess when uh, no kind of treatment is working on the patient. And, you know, a lot of these children have severe episodes of epilepsy. And, uh, you know, you, they treat it, but they don't know what's causing it because they can't find maybe a neurological reason or any other thing. So I think it's always a lot of the family say when they want to have the next child, they'd like to know what's actually causing it to make a reproductive decision, probably. At the back and then down to the middle, yes. So obviously there are a number of different mitochondria that you might find in a cell multiple genetic makeups. How many cells are you looking at or how many mitochondrial genomes are you looking at? Uh, so all you need is just one DNA. So one DNA sample can screen mitochondrial and nuclear genes, everything in the child's body or in the person's body. So. What it also does is you can find out if they are depleted mitochondria, so a reduction in the number, which also happens. So are you yeah. looking at everything in that one sample, or are you only sampling, say, a few cells from that blood test, or a few of the mitochondria? So you extract DNA. So that DNA will be, so if you get a blood sample, when you extract the DNA, that little DNA represents everything in the child's body. So it's basically a representation of how his genome is. Down here and then across. Yeah. Oh. So, is it a test that's specifically designed 
geared towards treating children with unknown disease, or is this applicable across all age ranges? Yeah, what about us adults? Yeah, of course, anyone. So I was just stressing on kids, but anything, like even uh, now it's going to come in the health system, a lot of accredited labs. So if you just want to go and know because your dad was, you know, susceptible to a certain disorder, you have breast cancer, you can just go to the GP and request for whole genome testing just out of curiosity if you want to be prepared or, you know. So yeah, it is. it has a very broad application. What does it cost? So there are many different types. So there's whole exome, which is less restricted. Whole genome gives you a lot. So around 1,000 to 3,000. For the whole genome? For the whole genome, about 3,000, yeah. Uh, my question was similar, but what's the time frame? Like, what is the average time taken for a test like that? Actually, we recently diagnosed uh, a little child within two weeks. So as opposed to 10 months to a year, two weeks, yeah. So it's basically having a team which is experienced clinicians, researchers, bioinformaticians, so, yeah. At the back. Hi, I'm just wondering, like, especially in case of exome and genome sequencing, if you're just looking at candidate genes or if you're looking at everything and you find late onset diseases or diseases that have no medical actionability, do you disclose that or how does that work? Yeah, so the whole pipeline. So I'll yeah. just repeat the question. Are you looking for specific <coughs> genes that you know causes a disorder? Or are you sequencing at all, which may uncover some nasty surprises? Absolutely. So with the whole genome, it sequences everything. And very often, you find something which there's no information at all about. So we've devised a pipeline where we quickly do functional tests. So we take, say, skin cells from the patient, which is less invasive, so which has the defect. We put the correct copy of the gene inside and see if it can rescue the defect then we can say, yes, it is the culprit, because when we put it back, it's actually rescuing what's there in the patient. So yes, it does help us uh, you know, widen that knowledge gap, which is already there. But what about if you're finding something that's going to be a late onset disorder? Uh, so then comes, you know, whenever you do genetic testing, there's a lot of counseling which goes. So you actually speak to the patient and tell them, you may, might get some nasty surprises. Do you really want to know everything? Do you want to know only about that? And they also prepare them psychologically if you know it's something drastic. So it's a choice. Thank you. We'll take last one down the front. Wondering how long before it's publicly available? Uh, not very long, because we've got a lot of NATA accredited labs. It's actually happening a lot. It's just that the technique has improvised a lot. But I'm thinking another year, uh, you'll see it, I think it's being advertised a lot already, so it's already accessible, it's just that it's improvising a lot to make the timelines and the quality of it much better. Terrific, thank you very much, Manal. That was Manal Menzies of the Metabolic Research Unit, Kids Research Institute, at the University of Sydney with her talk on Unraveling Genetic Disease Mysteries, A Path to Personalised Medicine. Thanks to Sarah Brooker and Neil Byrne of Science in Public for permission to broadcast the Fresh Science Bright Spark Challenge. And I finally escaped my sick bed during National Science Week to hear a panel discussion on biohacking at the Biofoundry at the Australian Technology Park in Redfern. After she spoke on the panel, I grabbed a quick chat with Dr Ellen Jorgerson. She's co-founder and director of a community laboratory called GenSpace in Brooklyn, New York. I began by asking her, what sort of things does GenSpace do? 
Genspace acts as a, a platform for innovation and also science communication and STEM education in an informal setting. So what we did was we set up a working biotechnology lab in an unconventional space in this funky building that has a lot of artists and musicians and other creative people. And when you walk in on one of the floors, there is an actual bio lab. It's open to the general public. We incorporate it as a not-for-profit. We teach classes to anyone off the street, so you can come in and learn genetic engineering. And we also act as a resource for people who um, would like to get more hands-on experience and training, such as students at university that may not have a lot of lab classes and are looking to get a job in biotech, or even for artists who want a space to incorporate biology into their artwork. And so if I was to come in off the street, how many classes would I have to do before I could get my hands onto some things and do some genetic engineering in the lab? Well, we teach a course called the Biotech Crash Course, which essentially gives you some practice in uh, the techniques that you would need to do, um, I'd say, genetic engineering 1.0. It's not really that difficult. It's, it's something that I always say, if, if the molecules were large enough to actually see, it wouldn't be such a mystery. And what are some of the projects that people are working on there at the moment? Well, we have one guy who's very interested in biomaterials. So he's training bacteria to manufacture things like cellulose and other carbohydrates like chitin. We've got a student who wanted to follow up on a business plan proposal that he wrote in business school where he proposed to turn spent waste from the brewing industry into animal feed using a naturally occurring fungus to digest it into carbohydrates. We have people working on, well, things that, that are proprietary, so I don't really want to talk about them, but, but actual projects that might turn into biomedical advances. We have a project that we've done sort of as a community outreach thing where we investigated the bottom muck of this very polluted waterway in New York called the Gowanus Canal and we looked at what's called the microbiome, so what microbes were living in this very toxic environment with the hope to find that some of them were actually eating it and perhaps there might be something learned about what sort of organisms can be used to detoxify canals like this. A lot of people naturally will worry about safety, so how do you make sure, as sure as you can, that it's all safe for the biohacking lab and the things that people do there? Well, we screen people's projects, so we don't just accept anyone as a member. We want to make sure that their project not only is something that we can accommodate in terms of what equipment we have, but it's also what we call biosafety level one which means that the organisms that they use have to be not pathogenic. They can't cause disease in, in humans or animals. And we have uh, standard waste services that take away any waste that might be produced, even though it is harmless. We take that extra step. It's just good laboratory practice. We have an advisory board that if we have any question about whether a project may or may not fit into our guidelines that we kick it up to them and it, the board is made up of people who are on the faculty of, uh, of institutions in our area. These spaces are also really good for early stage innovation. If you are 
either trained or untrained in biology, and right now there may be a fair number of biologists that are out of jobs or uh, decided to pursue careers that might be more lucrative, like going into programming, and yet they still have an idea they want to try out at the bench and maybe something that's commercially viable. There really isn't any place where you can go in and work in a lab for a couple of months and figure out whether or not that idea should go further. So these very early proof of concept experiments have no place to go. And I think we're, we're, losing, um, we're losing this innovation potential that could be happening by not accommodating people that want to try out something and either may not have an institution to do it, may not be trained in the typical manner. And these spaces can really provide, uh, they can fill that gap. They can provide a space for this kind of innovation. Well, Ellen, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. That was Dr. Ellen Jorgensen from GenSpace, New York. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Diffusion Radio. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then explore more than 850 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.